Welcome to Got Invention Radio. I'm your host, Brian Freed, and tonight we have a special guest. He's from Lifetime Brands. His name is Bill Lazaroth. He's the Senior Vice President of Industrial Design and Product Development. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hi, Brian. How are you? Doing Hi. great. Thank you. It's exciting to have you on the show, Bill. I, I was telling inventors that I believe that Lifetime Brands is the world's largest kitchenware company in the world. Is that right? Uh, that is true. And what makes them the biggest in the world? Well, um, a number of things. It's uh, One, it's the number of products that we have available, and it's close to 50,000 SKUs, independent SKUs. Uh, it's the amount of product development that we do on a yearly basis. Uh, this year, we'll bring between 4,500 and 5,000 new products to market. And when we say that, it's not we don't count the same item in 20 colors or iterations as 20 separate items. So we're very, you know, we're very tough about how we classify something as a new SKU. Um, we are the dominant player in food prep in terms of kitchenwares. We are easily uh, the largest uh, in-house designer, manufacturer, and supplier of that uh, category of goods. Also cutlery. Um, which is a you know a, a really big category in food prep. We, I guess, I describe us as the 800-pound gorilla. Um, we also are big players in bakeware and cookware, uh, countertop kitchenware, which we would call pantryware. We have a very big dinnerware division, flatware, um, amongst other things. So you know we're a very diverse company in terms of the number of products we have, the breadth of categories, the brands that we are involved with and our distribution network, which basically goes up and down to all retailers and left and right to all retailers. So that's great. So we're, we're a pretty big player. Now, when you take a look at some of the products that are in the retail uh, shelves and hanging on those uh, J hooks, do we see lifetime brands or what are those brands that we see that, uh, that lifetime is responsible for? Yeah, you really don't see us uh, per se. You will see brands that we own You'll see brands for which we are the licensee, and you'll see brands for whom we do private label work. So it could be anything from brands that we own, so the Mikasa brand, Falsegraph, some of these venerable names like Toll, Wallace Silversmith. Um, those, are, those are names that are household names, and a lot of them are not just the United States or North America, but worldwide. And there are brands for which we do uh, the licensed work, and, and those also are pretty famous, KitchenAid. And Cuisinart come to mind. Another own brand, by the way, is Farberware, so lots of people are quite familiar with that. And then we do a lot of uh, in-house design, but we are kind of um, in the shadows, so to speak, for brands for which we do the private label. So if you go to Macy's and you look at a lot of the Martha Stewart product that's there, that's us. If you go to Kohl's, for instance, and you see Food Network and or Bobby Flay, that's us. We do work for Giada, for Target. So, you know, our, our, our work exists at multiple levels. Again, brands that we own, brands for which we have a licensee, and brands for which we do private label. So we're, we're busy. It's a lot of stuff. Well, that's great. Bill, tell us a little bit about your background. You have an extensive background. Your title was Senior VP of Industrial Design and Product Development. Uh, you obviously know how to bring a product to, uh, to life. Tell us what you've been up to uh, and, and what brought you to this level. Well, you know, the last 14 years I've been at Lifetime. Uh, the company has grown substantially since I've been there. I like to think I'm part of that. Certainly not the only person responsible by any stretch. But, you know, when I got to Lifetime 14 years ago, we really did not have uh, much of a, an industrial design department to speak of. It was just two people uh, basically doing drafting uh, in the old-fashioned way. Um, and over the years, we have really um, spearheaded uh, product development and industrial design and engineering as well in-house by not only adding staff to the point where I've got a, a rather large uh, group of people in-house in Garden City, but we've got state-of-the-art software, hardware, and rapid prototyping equipment in-house. So we've really um, come all the way from what I would say somewhat primitive uh, beginnings to really being state-of-the-art uh, in 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 the world of industrial design. Previous to my experience uh, at, at Lifetime and my, and, and my work at Lifetime, I was a retailer, um, had my own retail stores, 
And I think I learned a lot about consumers, uh, what consumers are looking for in, in products, be they new products or quality or whatever, whatever ways you want to think about products, customer service, and also really uh, tried to teach myself and learn as much as I could about what makes a good product, the materials involved, the material science, manufacturing processes that are involved, and get a real good understanding of that as well. And I, and, I mean, I could go back and back and back in time, but <laughs> I would say within the last, you know, 25 to 30 years between my retail background, being on that side of the fence, and then being able to take all that expertise and experience to a lifetime and incorporate it into uh, helping develop the company both from a, an industrial design perspective and a brand perspective uh, and, and now into what we're looking to do in terms of a global perspective. I think my earlier experience was invaluable. Well, Bill, I have to say, just from my experience of, uh, you know, I've been at Lifetime Brands headquarters in uh, Garden City, New York, several times, and I'll never forget where we ended up meeting in, the, uh, in, in one of the rooms there, and you brought me to the prototyping area and basically your, your work area with all your team and all the prototyping machines, and that was something that really stuck with me. It was so impressive, but what's even more impressive is how passionate you are about what you do. It's unbelievable, and, and uh, look, you have uh, a great team there, and you're coming out with super products, and you know that's why you're, uh, you're, the, you're the top of, uh, of the kitchen world uh, with all these different SKUs and different products and constantly developing. Well, the prototyping thing is key because what it's allowed us to do, and I, and I give uh, you know, the rest of senior management who's been supportive of, of all my uh, requests over the years, they, they don't see me that often in their <laughs> office, but when I walk in, they know it's going to be expensive. <laughs> so they cringe a little bit, but they also know that there's going to be a real business return on investment and in what I'm asking for. I really don't want to just have expensive toys to show off. We really have a business purpose for our rapid prototyping machine machines and I think it's germane to the to the show and, and to all the inventors out there because really it's allowed us to do quite a number of things. One, um, it's allowed us to do what I call proof of concept in-house um, and it increases our speed to market because with the number of rapid prototyping machines that we've got and the sophistication of them, we are really able to prove our concept. I really don't have to worry about jobbing out um, some of our more expansive uh, kinds of projects to outside engineering firms uh, or, or the like, because there's a, there's a cost associated with that, which could really be daunting. And, and what I found very early on at Lifetime was we, we, would, we would be bashful about trying certain things, because we knew that if we tried something, it might cost us $100,000 or $75,000. And the cost of entry you know, to create your proof of concept was just too much. It would, it would, it would just be, you know, just too much of a barrier. Right. But over the years, having invested in these rapid prototyping machines, and the cost up front for those is expensive, but the cost over time, in terms of amortizing what they cost and the, and the productivity that you get from them, really they, they, they pay for themselves in a year. Some of these machines are quite expensive. Uh, the one I bought uh, for the company last year was well over a quarter of a million dollars. But I have to tell you, what it produces back in business and saves us in outside costs and what more importantly and most importantly, what it allows us to accomplish and try to accomplish in-house is incalculable. We, we try to do certain things and manage to do them and prove our ideas in-house for some pretty, pretty way out things that we never, I know for a fact, we never would even have tried if we didn't have the, capa the in-house capabilities with these machines. We just would have passed on the idea in the, in the first place and lost the opportunity for all that business. So, right. Well, you know what it is? You said two key words there, senior management. That means you know you have and your company has the resources to be able to do that, which is fantastic. Now, let's talk about the inventor. There's so many inventors that uh, on a daily basis ask me where they can make a prototype. Then you have the serial inventors that all they want to do is come up with an idea and spit out a prototype just so they could see it and you know feel it and works like feels like type of experience. And now, actually, one of the main sponsors of Got Invention Radio is Mojo Printers, which are desktop 
uh, rapid prototyping machines. So, Bill, do you have experience with, with those type of machines? And maybe you can help the inventor out. Look, we have great ideas, you know, so we think, and most of us have great ideas, and, you know, they're at, we're at all different stages of our invention process. But here, there's inventors that have this idea. They make a, you know, they finally find somebody to make a CAD drawing for them, uh, and now they want to see their product come to life. What would you say to the independent inventor out there to be able to make a prototype? Well, first to answer your first question, I, I love those desktop printers. One of my goals in the next couple of years is have every single person who works for me have one of those at their desk. Um, logistically, that would be a great, a great thing. Um, in terms of uh, you know getting time on our rapid prototype machines, you know we've got over 30 people in house. And so if they're all working on something simultaneously, and that happens quite often, and they're all trying to get time on our printers, sometimes there's a day, two, three, four-day delay, uh, especially trying to build big parts or multiple parts that then have to be assembled. Mm -hmm. um, so one of my goals is to have every single person have one of those desktop printers. And, and with economies of scale and, and, and the cost of these things coming way down to about four or $5,000, for a company like ours, that's eminently doable. For the in to answer your second part, for the individual inventor, um, you know, I think that's a question, again, of scale. You know, if you've just got the one idea and, you know, you're really not the serial inventor, I don't think that's a wise move. But if you are somebody who's really productive and is constantly coming up with ideas and really, um, you know, want to get to those ideas, the proof of those ideas faster, Definitely worth the definitely worth the investment, and I think it's analogous to what I was talking about before. A company like ours, if once or twice a year we we're going to come up with a big idea and we wanted proof of concept, it'd be idiotic for us to invest in these big machines that we've got and all the and all the uh, material and the support and the maintenance costs and all that other stuff that's associated. But we are serial inventors. We are constantly coming up with stuff every day, every week, 52 weeks a year, and so it makes sense for us. And so I think it would make sense for an inventor who is equally, you know, uh, productive. Uh -huh. um, that doesn't mean they have to come up with an idea a day. But you know, if you're someone who comes up with a multitude of ideas all the time, surely pays to be able to do that kind of thing in-house. And surely is too expensive, uh, likely too expensive to keep jobbing your stuff out. And I guarantee you, Brian, that there's lots of people out there that go, oh, crap, you know, $20,000 to get that done or $10,000 to get that done. I'll just wait, I'll just pass, I'll just not do it. And, you know, one of the principles I talk about when I, and I lecture at different colleges or in-house is the whole principle of simultaneous invention. I have to tell you, you know, it happens all the time, and that's why speed to market is so important, and I would urge anybody, either as an independent or as a company, if you think you've got a really good idea, make sure you've got the wherewithal, that's equipment, software, whatever, to get to that idea as fast as you can, because surely someone else is going to come up with it also. Sure. And, and with the way the IP law is going to change very soon, actually next month, it's really, as you know, it's going to be first to file, not prior art. Right. You're referencing the uh, United States Patent and Trademark Office, America Invents Act. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that is a big, big, big deal for everyone, not just big companies like ours, but any independent inventor. You know, you can say, I came up with that and I have the prior art to prove it will mean absolutely nothing going forward. Sure. It'll be who filed first. So I think the concept of simultaneous invention coupled with what's going on with the IP law, the change in the IP law, makes it imperative for people to get to their proof of concept as fast as possible. All right. So, Bill, we have th this uh, independent inventor then that isn't a serial inventor. They have one idea or two ideas, and you have... Many, many of these type of uh, inventors. What do you tell them if they want to have a, product, a prototype made? Where do they go? What do they do? You know, when I first started getting my prototypes made, I didn't know what ABS, polypropylene, all these different types of material, and one costs more than the other and different processes. Maybe you could just give us some tips on what we need sure. to do to find where we should make one and what we should ask just to kind of make us a little bit more educated when we do uh, a shop around for a prototype. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you, people like that would be in the same stage and same phase as Lifetime was before we had rapid prototyping. So the question would be, well, how'd you guys get it done? What did we do? 
and we really looked at companies that um, did that for a living. And, and you know, in the world of the internet now, it should be very hard to find. You look for, you just look it up, you know, and you'll find companies like Free Access or great model shops like Manhattan Model Shop. And mind you, I'm not pushing these guys' businesses. It's just who comes to mind right now. There's there's lots of guys. There's, there's tons of places around the country um, that um, will will do this. Obviously, fee based. And again, in the world of electronic transfer, you know, you guys, you know, I set up something with a with a non-disclosure. I set up something that covers you um, for the rights of your rights of your ideas. And with electronic transfer, you get somebody to um, build a 3D file for you, send that file to the appropriate company. They can make that model uh, and send it back to you. So you don't even have to go there in person. I think it's very very easy to do that. Much easier today than it was five or ten years ago. Um, there's also a lot of uh, independent designers out there, industrial designers, who don't work for a company like mine. They, they are freelancers, uh, just like this freelance graphic designers and stuff. And those are easy to find. You can go on websites like Core77 um, and find them. Right. We've mentioned uh, Core77, Core Afloat. There's, right. uh, there's a bunch of those. That's great. This is great information. You know... Bill, people can always say what you should do, but when you're actually telling us where we can go and and how to do it, that's very important to us because you know it's we, we get off the we listen to the show, then we get offline and we go, okay, now what? How do I find that? So we appreciate you giving us. It's okay, you can give us references. It's we need okay. to know where to go. Okay, I mean, so I don't. I don't think we want to spend too much time. It's up to you, but <laughs> I, I think if you went online, for instance, and just you know typed in the information, such as you know rapid prototype houses or 3D engineering firms that that do this for a living, um, you'd come up with just a, a wildly long list. And again, going to websites like a Core 77. Um, you know, and all these things have tentacles, by the way. So you go onto one thing, and it kind of leads you to another place. Right. Um, but I think that's easily found today. No, that's um, perfect. And you... More so than ever before. And of course, the prices are going to vary. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned materials. It really is going to depend. I, I can't recommend any particular material because I don't know what the what the product is. You know, you might need somebody to make a real casting for you, and that might, you know, that might limit, um, you know, your resources if you're looking for. Just stereolithography, you know, that's a different thing if you're looking for something to be made in a particular plastic like an ABS or a polyethylene or a polypropylene or, or you might need something done in a nylon 6.6 or some type of phenolic because there, there's, there's heat involved. Um, not everybody can do silicone, so you might want to change that. If, if that was part of your product, you might want to change that to a TPR or a thermoplastic rubber or a thermoplastic elastomer that would give you the same feel but might not necessarily cost as much and give you the same, you know, give you the same final product. But it might not be necessary for your proof of concept or for your model. So okay. How do we de- how do we identify what material we're going to use? I think you need advice from the, the the company that's going to be making the model for you. Okay. I think you have to tell them. The inventor would have to tell them. This is what I wanted to do. This is how I need it to perform. These guys are also material science experts as well. Great. So I don't think you need to become a material science expert to be an inventor or to get your prototypes made. And I think if you're if you're working with an engineering firm uh, and also most industrial designers that are pretty knowledgeable about materials, uh, you can get someone to guide you and steer you and help you. Okay. Uh, uh, very interesting. So yeah. you brought us through the process of when we come up with an idea – we can go to a product designer, an industrial engineer, depending on what type of product. You make up the 3D drawings. You bring it to a prototyping house or you do it yourself or you buy your own uh, prototyping desktop machine these days. And so you're, you're bringing it to a point where you say, okay, I'm ready to go. It works like it. Now, some people might work on the intellectual property before all this. Some people might work afterwards. But how important is intellectual property and when what part of the stage from a from a you know large company like yours to if you can compare it also to an inventor what your suggestions might be on when we should secure intellectual property protect our idea with a patent i would i would highly recommend particularly again with the change in law coming up 
that as soon as you think you have an idea that's worth protecting, and then you also have the intention of going forward and and trying to get this to become a real product, I would file a provisional patent. Um, the provisional um, gives you a year. Um, you can do provisionals yourself. Um, I would suggest, if you think you've got the next slice bread, that you get a real professional patent attorney, which is going to cost you a few dollars. It might cost you anywhere from three to $7,000 these days uh, to help you write the provisional. But you can do provisionals yourself from for less than $700. Sometimes it's $300, $500. It's, it's really not very expensive to do it yourself. And what that will do is protect your idea, providing, of course, you write it up in a an intelligent manner and correctly, um, and you get that provisional filed that does protect you for a year. Um, once that year is up, uh, hopefully you've either abandoned the idea or you just decided to go forward with it, and you would then go forward with a full patent application, a utility patent application. Okay. But you know, I think that's got to get done because again, with you know, it, we live in a copycat world uh, more so than ever before. There's a dearth of of new ideas, and, and frankly, not everybody's that honest and that, and that decent. And again, with the idea today that you can just take someone else's idea and go file it, uh, file, file for a patent, and if that other person hasn't done it, it then becomes yours. You know, it's kind of cutthroat and kind of nasty, but uh, that is the world we're living in. So, yep, well, you know, Bill, we, we talk about this quite often on our show. Um, doing a patent search first, you know, you can get so emotionally attached to your idea and bring it all the way up to a point where you've done all this and made the 3D drawing and everything else and then all of a sudden you you end up doing a provisional patent you go and you try to present well you present your idea to a company like Lifetime Brands and I know you're not in the legal department but if you bring it up to the point and then your legal department goes through the IP and they go they do their own search and they go wait a second uh Brian uh is this your idea? You know, and they show somebody else's patent. They go, well, you know, we don't really need you. You know, the IP is going to be very weak, and we don't need you. We have we have somebody that already has a full patent on the product. Is yours something so different and unique? But that's not that shouldn't be your position when we're as inventors, when we're presenting products to a company like yours, we should make sure that we're protected. Number one and number two, be prepared so when you your company likes our idea, we want to make sure that there's some intellectual property that you're going to be able to license. Otherwise, you don't need us. Uh, absolutely, 100%. But I would also, uh, you know, with your comments, I'd like to add to what I said earlier. Please. I hope that before you bother with the provisional and you bother to go ahead with, with much of anything else, that you have done some due diligence uh, in terms of a, a patent search. I will caution everybody out there that Unless you're a patent attorney, you're completely incapable of doing a 100% full search. You're not going to be able to do it. That's different than um, saying I can look at a patent and I can look at a product or a product idea and tell you whether – I can look at an existing patent and I can look at an existing product or an existing idea for a product and I can tell you whether that idea or product is in violation of that existing patent whether you have freedom to operate or not, that's different from the reverse, which is doing a full patent search. I will caution everybody that you're just not capable of doing that. Okay, there's a lot of there's a lot of inventors also, Bill, that when I ask them, did you do a search? Did you do a patent search? Did you do a, you know take a look and see if it's something that uh, with claims and so forth? They say, well, I went to Target, Walmart, Sears. I went uh, to all those companies, and I didn't see it out there. And I searched online for a few minutes, and I didn't see it, and this is going to revolutionize the world. What do you think about that, Bill? I, I would just say that that's idiotic, and that would be a polite way of saying it, since mm -hmm. we are on the radio. Mm -hmm. um, it's meaningless to look at what's out there. Let's recognize something about what's, what's in existence versus what's in the patent database, which is about almost 8 million patents now in the United States. We're not even talking about anywhere else. Only 2%, 2% of the ideas that have gotten a utility patent have ever become a product. So you have to recognize that 98% of the ideas that exist in the utility patent world have never existed in real life. 
So to think that you've gone out in real life and searched what's out there, and first of all, think that you've captured everything that's out there, number one, which is silly, and then number two, to think even if you have captured everything that's in existence, that that represents everything that's been patented, is, is, is just idiotic. Because 98% of the ideas that are, the other 98% of the ideas have never seen the light of day. So you really do need to, and it do, they don't need to see the light of day to still exist as a patent and still be protected. Sure, you want to protect you your... come out with something that's in violation of an existing patent, and that idea has never seen the light of day as a product, and you're still in violation. So right. you really need a professional to do a full search. You can do a cursory search. You can go on Google Patents, which is a great website. There's a lot of other patent search sites as well. Google is very easy to navigate, just as their regular stuff is you know, on Google. Google Patents is very well organized. But I will, again, caution everybody, really well-written, and I do work a lot with the with, with NIP and work a lot with legal. I spend a lot of my time on this because it's so core to what we do. But I will tell you that a really well-written patent is more obfuscated than it is clear. So sometimes even the title doesn't tell you what the patent is. Um, and if, you, if you're searching for, say, cookie sheet, and you think, well, I'm going to look at cookie sheets or baking sheets, and I'll type that in, and every cookie sheet and baking sheet in the world is going to come up. Trust me, that's not the case at all. And then unless you've got some type of really sophisticated uh, computer search program with these algorithms that are built in for all these search words, you have to find it in title or look in the abstract or look in the body or look in the claims. You could spend your life looking for, you know, looking to capture all the existing patents for one idea. Right. I leave it to the experts. I, I, that's why I have, I, I'm a believer in specialists and there's, yeah. uh, it's an art. Uh, the way these patents are, are written, and if you want to protect your idea properly, in my opinion, and be able to capture uh, a licensee like uh, like a Lifetime Brands, you want to make sure that you do your due diligence. And at the same time, you also don't want to waste your time, money, resources, everything else, when it's not your idea and it's somebody else's. Yeah, and the second part of that is, uh, which, you, which you touched on, and I, was and I was touching on as well, is, okay, Let's say you were good enough to capture all of the 6,373 patents that are out there for, say, whisks or garlic presses. or whatever. Now you have to read them all. Now you have to go through all the claims and analyze what they're saying has been covered. Who has, there's very few people that are not patent attorneys or skilled in that art who could even think that they could do that. So it's a terrible hubris to suffer from to think that you are capable of doing that as someone who's, who's not doing that as a professional. So, again, if you think you've really got something um, and you think down the road it's gonna, there's going to be a payoff, you're worth, it's worth investing on the front end to get it done right. Okay? Both Thank you. A, a filing process, both from a search process and really as we continue to talk from the, from the rest of it, you know, from a business process as well. Absolutely. So, uh, Thank you for that information, Bill, and, and, your, uh, and your insight to that. I, I'd like to move on to uh, this point, which is very interesting, because when I first started and I uh, was working with certain licensees, I my expectations were kind of uh, kind of uh, mismatched. And working with other inventors that also license products, it comes up time and time again. And I'm talking about development time of bringing a product to market, um, whether you. Do it yourself, uh, whether you do it at Lifetime Brands, uh, going through your process there, and just to make uh, one iteration of uh, of a product takes three or four days for you, but you know, and, and your your machines there working on this day and night. Um, once you end up doing the drawing, doing the CAD drawing, doing several iterations of uh, of of the prototypes, bringing it to a point where now you have to get pricing on how much. The product is going to cost an intellectual property and everything else. I mean, there's some parts of that that an inventor will come to you with and have done a good amount of it, but there's still, I'm sure, going to be tweaking. Now, once there, once it ends up getting to that point, then you have to give it to your, hand it off to your uh, next team there that has to go and talk to the buyers. And then when the buyers say, I like it, I don't like it, come back in three months, six months, a year, then the next step is they say like then then there's something called the planogram and that takes time till it ends up getting into retail right so i mean there's this whole cycle of bringing a product to market but let's just go back a little bit 
and start off with the development time. What does it take you, Bill, to come up with an idea today and bring it to a point where you're handing it off to a buyer? Well, it's such a complicated question, and it's the kind of question that I get every day at work mm -hmm. from every different business division. How long is it going to take? <laughs> Tomorrow, my answer, yesterday. Yeah, my answer, well, that's, that's what everyone wants to hear, but my answer is every, every project is unique, um, and that doesn't mean that we can't rely on history and experience and expertise. But every, every project is unique, and you, you touched on something you mentioned, planning grants. So for instance, you know, someone says, well, I think I could get that into Walmart and sell you know, bajillions of them. You've got to realize that Walmart resets their floor once a year, once a year. And there's a whole process, and Target's the same way. You don't just march in there and go, you know, here's the next great whatever, and they're like, good, we'll take six million of them, and you know, now that guy can retire. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. And um, it, could take a, it could take six months after we've even taken the idea and, and gotten it to its peak performance and, you know, value engineered it so, and, and costed it out and found the right factory or factories, our factory partners to, to make it and, and did a whole marketing plan for it and all the other stuff that has to happen in lifetime, you know, it's still, you could miss a cycle, for instance, at Walmart, and if you don't get into their presentation cycle late summer, early fall, so that you can go through all those cutoffs that's kind of like, you know, um, it's almost like tryouts. You know, you've got here's the 1,000 products, they get it down to the next 500, they get it down to the next 200, and they keep cutting it down to things that have to get through this process from all these different levels of management. If you don't get into that cycle even to start, there's no way you could ever get into the planogram reset, say, in February when that happens. And then you'd miss another entire year. So that sounds kind of daunting and whatever, but that's the pressure that you live under. Target's that way. There are some other retailers that are much easier um, uh, to access simply because they're not as gigantic and the logistics of, of getting their stores reset isn't, isn't such a major undertaking. Uh, it's like, you know, the invasion of Normandy kind of thing versus, you know, attacking a small hill someplace. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, can be, it can be pretty in, insane. Uh, trying to get into the stream or hop onto that, that moving train kind of a thing, hop on and not, not get crushed and fall off. But to go to the front end of things, I think, um, you know, there's a reality check. Uh, and you have to understand that, again, most of the ideas that come to us, even though um, people think they've really developed them, they might have developed them to solve the problem that that, that creation is solving. You know, there's like, here's the problem. Here's this invention I came up with to solve that problem. And the inventors kind of think that they're done, but really the next, the next step is usually, hey, we got to make this thing work. We have to make it work for a price. We then have to design or develop these things for our appropriate brands. Um, we then have to, again, do all the other logistics, meet with our factory partners, work out the details, fight about costs, negotiate, figure out packaging, marketing, et cetera, then our sales team has to get involved as well. Um, and sometimes that happens before we even do anything, just to see if there's gauge interest. So there's a lot of those things that have to happen. Um, and, and again, then there's all the other stuff like you know inventory control and projections and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of practical stuff that has to happen. But, right. but I would say the majority of things that we have seen um, from outside inventors that have come to us, I, I'd say they're maybe half done. And um, one thing my, my, my group and I are very, very good at is taking a really good idea and making it even better. Um, and, and that's something, you know, we, we take a lot of pride in. And we also are able to take an idea because of the, the breadth of brands that we've got. We can take an idea and turn it into 20 different things just from that one idea. One good example, if, you, if I can give you one. Sure. Um, so we had a, a guy come to us a couple of years ago with uh, a, a very cool invention. Uh, an odor-absorbing splatter screen. I don't know if you've seen it or not, uh, but you know splatter screens have been out there for a long, long time. You know they're circular mesh uh, items with a handle, and you cover a fry pan or a sauté pan. And if you're, you know, instead of grease flying all over the place, it captures the the splatter and keeps it inside the pan while um, smoke or whatever can come through. Now, that's a great thing for the splatter, but it's not a great thing for the smoke and the odor, for instance, if you were cooking fish in your house. 
so this one gentleman came up with an idea of putting an active carbon filter in between the two layers of stainless steel mesh on this splatter screen. And he got a utility patent for it, um, came to us with it, and we thought it was the, just absolutely the greatest idea. And, and you know what? We were all right. It's one of the greatest ideas. And we're selling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these to all of our different retail partners, but all in different iterations, under different brands, at different quality levels, um, and different styles. So with a company like ours, it's not just one version of it. We, we went to town on this thing, and I would honestly say, Brian, within three weeks, we had maybe 30 to 40 new designs, and then each one of those designs took on a life of its own based on the brand that we wanted to apply it to. And this item has gotten distribution everywhere from Walmart in one iteration under one brand all the way to Williams-Sonoma uh, and, and all the different levels vertically in retail uh, in between. I mean, it's just been a major success story. Uh, that's an example of an item that wasn't that hard to do, frankly. Um, but there are some things that we've seen that we've gotten. We, we've been looking at a corkscrew lately that needs a tremendous amount of work. and. Here's the second part of that. Sometimes inventors think that they've actually solved the problem, and they really haven't, because their standard is different than our standard. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what they think actually works, we don't really think actually works, because they're, they're not comparing it to all of the other items that are in the industry. Right. Um, okay. Well, that, it's very, very interesting. Uh, I mean, it's you don't... There's people that have experienced it, and then there's people that are just hearing it for the first time, and it's very, very interesting. I want to, if you don't mind, Bill, um, I'd just like to move on uh, to the next concept here of, of what I'm thinking and, uh, to be able to present to the, uh, to present to the inventors. I, I'd like to just, um, if you don't mind, what's your opinion on, because you've seen it all uh, from the retail, from product development, from uh, you know, working with buyers as well. Um, what's your what's your take on inventors trying to bring a product to market on their own versus licensing? If you don't mind just uh, spending a minute on that. I, I tell you the truth. If it was me on my own, I, I would be very intimidated. Um, I think in today's in today's age, where the way with the way retail has changed, um, where you've got fewer retailers, uh, and I go way back to when there were just a billion retailers and. They, the accessibility was a lot greater, uh, and the open to buy was always there, and the open to listen, more importantly, was always there. It's it's tough on your own. I don't, you know, look, we're we're one of the biggest companies in, in on the planet in our industry, and we have a hard time sometimes getting appointments. So I, I don't know how an independent inventor uh, would really feel that confident today, trying to get an audience with the big retailers that are out there. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they would do it. In fact, I don't think they would be able to. Now, there are other channels, you know, there's, there's started with infomercials and is now, you know, evolved into, you know, lots of TV shows um, and, and outlets like HSN and QVC and, and, and stuff like that. But even that's very, very difficult. And the way that they operate in terms of, uh, you know, product and inventory requirements, that's not something that, you know, Joe Schmo is going to want to deal with on his own, saying, yeah, no problem. I'll make 100,000 of those. We'll have the product on wheels in case it doesn't sell, and I'll take them all back. I mean, they don't have exit strategies. They don't even have the cost of entry is too, too crazy, and there's no exit strategy. Right. But you know so, what, Bill? Just from, from another point, because I've experienced personally licensing products and also manufacturing and going to, retail, uh, to buyers and doing all that. So I have to say that it is possible because I've done it. But it's very, very difficult. And just and I just brought this story up, I think, a couple weeks ago because it happened to me only a few months ago. And we're in August of 2012 right now. But I went to a buyer with a product, and the buyer loved it. And she said to me, Brian, I love your product. I'll give you a 30-store test. But why don't you go to so-and-so because it's a perfect item for them. Basically, basically she said, Brian... I don't feel like setting up a whole new vendor account information, worrying about logistics, having your one product, you ask it, you know, it seemed like the way the stores have consolidated that they choose to consolidate their vendors. So instead of me manufacturing, which I 
was able to do, and I did have inventory, they would t prefer to just kind of put it on a line that's already existing in their stores. Without a doubt. There's no doubt about that. That's another big part of it. But you remember, you're, you know, you're a pretty special guy, and you've got now, you now have a track record, and you've done this before, so you've got some confidence. But you're also quite the exception. I, I think the path that, you know, that you've taken is unique versus, you know, you're more an anomaly than you are the rule, for sure. And I think the success stories that you have, while, while and I'm being very frank here, while they're refreshing and, and really uplifting, I, I think they're extraordinarily unusual. And I, I'm not trying to say, oh, always go to, you know, a bigger company and, and have them do it for you. But I have to tell you, in today's world, it is so difficult to take care of all of that other stuff as an independent person. I mean, you got to remember, the audience that I think we're speaking to, and based on some of the questions that we started off with, we got a lot of folks that are just trying to figure out how to get the darn thing prototyped and made and presentable I think trying to take on all of that other stuff, manufacturing, distribution, marketing, blah, 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 when you've got companies that are experts in that, that will take on all of that for you and also incur the cost of tooling. Um, you know, if someone comes to us with some complicated corkscrew, for instance, tooling might be $100,000, $80,000, $70,000 for something. That's another major cost for an independent person to take a huge risk on with the hopes that, um, you know, eventually there's going to be an ROI on that, it's going to be a return on investment. Right. If you come to a company like Lifetime or other companies in the industry and we say, hey, we love the idea, sit back, here's your, here's your percentage of sales, okay, here's your, here's your royalty payment, relax. We got everything else. We got everything else covered. We will do all the industrial design drawings. We'll take care of all the mechanical engineering. We'll take care of all the negotiating. We'll take care of all of the tooling. We'll take care of all the manufacturing, all the shipping, all the selling, all the accounting. You just sit home and, and take your cut. Wow, you know, uh, to me that's the that's a little easier. Um, now, I, I, again, I, I just want to say I, I think you're you're a special guy, and I think you're <laughs> you're very much the exception. Thanks, um, Bill. But so. I just I make I make an example because it is possible, and and you know what what really. What really pushes me is to set an example for the inventors that that it can be done. And you know, believe me, I've lost plenty of sleep. And it, you know, again, the show is not about me, but you know, there are different journeys and different paths that people can take. And in this day and age, also with viral marketing and going online and putting your product out there, making a short run and getting some activity, and then getting some traction from other people. I mean, there's different journeys to take, but. The, the path of least resistance is to bring your product up to a point where you have it protected. And then, you know, even if it's protected on, on chicken scratch paper, uh, to bring it to a company that can license it and take it all the way for you, it's not going to happen overnight. Just like we spoke about with the development time, it takes time. And then once you end up developing it, then till it gets into the retail for mass distribution is another story. But it's great information, Bill. Really, really appreciate this insight from somebody of your uh, uh, caliber uh, being able to present this uh, information to the inventors. Um, I'd like to go into the next uh, quick topic here. Uh, you know, all these topics we can have a whole show on. But okay. if, you don't, if you don't mind, now that we brought it to a point where maybe we might choose to manufacture our own product, and I'd like to talk about the way Lifetime, or just in general, uh, manufacturing products versus, let's say, uh, an inventor that might not want to license their product and manufacture it. Tell us what your experience is uh, for manufacturing in the U.S. versus China and overseas. Well, um, it has changed dramatically in the in the 14 years I've been a lifetime. When I when I got to lifetime, I will tell you we, you know, we we've all those of us that are old enough, and, and I think if you're 35 years old or 30 years old or older, you're old enough. You've lived through the Industrial Revolution of China, which hasn't taken that long. It's taken maybe you know 20 years, 15 years, for for China to become this unbelievable economic powerhouse. And they've done it in an interesting way, and they've done it in a way that's never been seen before. And and I think you know what I've lived through with Lifetime is is a pretty good illustration of what's happened. You know, when I got there, 
We make nothing in China, nothing, absolutely nothing. Most of our products were made in Taiwan, uh, Korea, and Europe, and the United States. Um, and we did not believe at the time, and I think we were right at the time, that China was capable of making anything. Um, you know, it was all cheap junk. Uh, they were great at copying things in a very poor way. Um, really didn't have the expertise or the equipment or, or even the economic wherewithal, uh, with, particularly in our industry, to, to, to be important. But that changed really, really fast. Um, and because of the, um, the economic policies there, their ability to move hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of people uh, to the southern part of China, invest in this unbelievable rapid building of their infrastructure, and at the same time, take advantage of the difficulty of business in Europe and the United States, um, steal a lot of people, bring them over there, um, buy equipment that was already in existence, um, uh, and bring that over, and kind of very, very quickly, I mean, I'm really, really fast, um, be in the business, so to speak. And I'll give you a couple of good examples. You know, I, I mean, we don't make spaceships, and we don't make um, cars, and we don't make the most you know, we don't we don't make stuff of that ilk. We're making housewares and making tabletop products, but some of what we make requires real precision. And and it's stuff. The tolerance is the word that we use. The tolerances are off, even just the slightest bit. And by that I mean fractions of a millimeter. Sometimes the product just doesn't work. It doesn't not work well. It just doesn't work. For instance, a can opener or a, or a corkscrew. Um, there are very very high tolerances on those types of products, and it's it's not a question of oh. It'll kind of get the can open. It'll kind of take the cork out. No, it won't open the can at all, and you'll bust the cork, or you'll, you know, you'll break the bottle. <laughs> it's just not going to work. And those are rather sophisticated items, believe it or not, and very tough to make. And China went from not even being on the radar to, in two or three years, uh, from I guess I started in 1998. By 2001, 2002, they were capable of making a can opener or a corkscrew that was truly world-class, as good as anybody's anywhere, because they had basically taken the equipment from Italy and Germany and France uh, and brought that over and brought over the people who were experts in, in doing that and trained people, uh, and they certainly had access to, to labor, trained people how to do that. And um, they, I, I tell you, it just, it just changed everything because the, the cost structures changed. Um, Economies of scale were different. Uh, accessibility was very different. Um, I think their their attitude toward work is very very different. Their attitude toward pleasing their their client, regardless of what it takes, so how how hard they have to work, how much time they have to put in, is very different. And they basically took over a lot of businesses. And so we to this today, unfortunately, or however you want to look at it, we don't do much manufacturing in the United States at all, likewise Europe, likewise Taiwan, likewise Japan, because you can get the same product as good or better for a lot less in China. Now, people might say, you know, that's not patriotic, that's not this, that's not that, but by the same token, I would turn the question around and say, well, if you went into a store and you could find a corkscrew that was beautiful, impeccably made, and work perfectly for $5, why would you pay $20 for the same thing? And you know that you wouldn't. And that's been borne out. You know, we, we, we have tremendous amounts of information and analysis on rates of sale for products at different price points, and the American consumer has gotten spoiled, for better or for worse, uh, for, for products that are very well made at much cheaper prices. Sure. Absolutely. And you know what, Bill? Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm completely patriotic. I'm all for United States manufacturing and so forth. At the same token, there's been products that I've come up with that were too high priced to be able to be made here, to be able to reach uh, retail and be able to even make a profit. I would lose money if I wanted to make it at the price points that consumers were telling me they would want my product. So then when I bring it overseas and I end up getting the pricing, fine. So the United States, unfortunately, may lose out on the manufacturing of that product. But then 
if I if we weren't able to make it here at all because nobody would buy it, then it wouldn't even be a product to be able to. Let's uh, and the point is, so it's made there. Then it has to get shipped to the ports here in the United States. Then there's somebody that has to take it off the docks and and manu- you know there's all the logistics side of it. And then there's all the people who have uh, jobs in the stores that have to take the products and stack them, and and then the retailer making money and the consumers buying it. So there is that that point of it is uh, adding to the economy. It just we lost out, unfortunately, on some part in the beginning. Absolutely, I feel exactly the way you do it, but that's the reality of it, and there's no escaping that reality. Yeah. And until everybody says, "Hey, I don't mind. I'll pay three times or four times more than that product currently costs just so I can buy it here," um, you know, that's not going to happen. So, unfortunately, there are certain sectors of manufacturing that have really gotten hit hard. Um, certainly the housewares industry isn't the only one, but you know, it's even plastics manufacturing. Mm-hmm. A, a good example would be the only thing that's still competitive and barely would be one-piece parts that are, that are plastic molded parts here, um, you know, because there's no labor involved. Um, you know, anytime you start adding labor, the cost of labor here is you know, so much more, so many, so many the multiple times uh, you know, versus what the cost of labor is in China that even having to ship it over here and have that cost of container ships coming and all the unloading and the whatever, whatever, it's still so much cheaper. And the net, the net retail is so much less. And frankly, you know, we could talk all we want about, you know, getting to the American consumer, but we still have to get it past the American retailer first. And when those buyers just say, hey, like you just said, we're not going to be able to retail that at $20. Don't even, don't even we don't want to look at it. You know, you have no choice but to look to where you can manufacture it at a cost-effective price. And that's, that's just reality. Right. You know? Bill, we, we have uh, a limited time on, on the show, and there's so much to, to speak about. I'd like, if you don't mind, uh, I, I'd like to talk about, just for a moment, if you don't mind, uh, just as a reference on what uh, I've heard you speak uh, at an Inventors Day at Lifetime Brands, what Triz is. This is a pretty complicated thing, but I'll, I'll try to make it um, as digestible as possible. You know, I have this theory that, uh, it's not my theory, but Triz is part of this theory that I have about really what's going to make you an effective, uh, effective inventor, effective um, business person today. And it's really combining, you know, your abilities as a problem solver to be able to take that, come up with an innovation, and then your your entrepreneurial skills and you really need to combine all three of those things today to be successful and you know I think before we even talk about Triz real fast you have to talk about what really an innovation is because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot and it says we're innovating we're innovating and you know the, the word the dictionary definition of it is really something new but that's really not the way we think about it in the world of, of business and it goes a little bit to the conversation about intellectual property you know to me and to my company and to most people that I know in the world of business, you know, an innovation, a real innovation is the implementation of a new idea, and it has to be profitable. So it's not enough just to come up with a new idea, say I came up with something new, because like I said, 98% of the things that have utility patents never see the light of day. That's not enough, unless you can really implement it, and when you implement it, you can make a profit, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's not an innovation unless you can do that. And and I'm not certainly I'm certainly not the originator of that idea. People like Joseph Schumpeter, guy who came up with the idea of creative destruction, an Austrian economist back in the 1800s. I mean, that's really his definition of it. And and in the world of business and in real innovation circles, that really is the thought process. So you go to Triz, and Triz is uh, an anagram for theories of inventors' problem solving, but it really comes from the Russian. It's a Phrase uh, Tiaria Reshenia is those brothels, six is a dot, so T R I Z <laughs> is really where that comes from. Don't try to repeat that. It hurts yourself. Um, but really, it was developed by uh, Heinrich Altschuler um, in the early 19, about the mid 1900s, 1930s, 1940s. Uh, really, one of the geniuses of the 20th century, and uh, he and a group of like-minded geniuses looked at things that were new and said, "How do people come up with new ideas?" It's just bolts of lightning, just, you know, boom, out of nowhere. Um, or is there some kind of systematic method that could be 
the underpinning of all of the new ideas that people come up with. So he said, well, where's the best place to look and search new ideas? And he said, well, the patents, the patents that have been issued. And he and his fellow geniuses, which is really what they were, they literally studied hundreds of thousands of utility patents. Because if you think about it, utility patents are the documentation, right, of what's new, new ideas. They're not they're not they're not obvious and they haven't been done before and we're documenting that by giving them a utility patent. Mm -hmm. So he said, let's study them all and is there some kind of consistent, repetitive methodology that people use, whether consciously or unconsciously, that allows them to keep coming up with new ideas? And believe it or not, the answer was yes, there is one. And they didn't set out to find an even round number of 40, but when they were all done studying hundreds of thousands of patents, they found 40 underlying principles that all these different inventors from all over the world were somehow using, whether they knew it or not, to continually come up with new ideas. So what's the value of that? And I'll, I'll mention a few of them, and just uh, people can certainly look this up and study it for themselves. How do, we, how do we look it up? Is it a book? Is it a, a paper? There are alternate spellings of that because it's, it's, you know, translated from Russian, but Heinrich Altschuler, G-E-N-R-I-C-H, um, Altschuler, or Triz, and you could look that up, and it will take you to a million places. Uh, but basically, you'll find the 40 principles of Triz that Altschuler um, uncovered. And the value of it is, if I were an inventor today, and really I am because I, that's part of my job, is to constantly come up with new ideas, not just for product, but for business and other applications. I would love it if I could sit there and go, you know what, I'm having a mental block, or I'm looking at a problem and I'm trying to solve it, and I have these two or three or four methods that I use all the time, and they're really not working. Hmm, either it's an unsolvable problem or I just don't have the right method. What if I had other methods? And when you think about what Altshuler says, there are 40 methods. It, you can solve any problem with one or more of these 40 methods. So if you become a master of trids, you likely can solve most any problem. And certainly within the world of what we do, which again isn't uh, you know applied physics or something you know quantum mechanics, you know, certainly certainly in the world of mechanical objects, um, which is what was the foundation of this unearthing of these principles. That would be a great like Rolodex to have, wouldn't it? Absolutely. It's just like right. It, what if I tried the idea, say, you know, um, segmentation? You know, so what does that mean? That was what, that was his first principle, uh, where you divide an object into its independent parts. You know, no, it's so, very it's very interesting. And there's there's the forty principles, and and the inventors are going to have to look this up because there's so much. I remember when I when when you went through it with me. I was amazed that if it's not this, then it's that, and you just keep going through it. And the inventors have to look it up because there's not enough time in this show to be able to go through them. That's a whole show in itself. One, one related thing, though, and for those that don't necessarily want to tackle Triz, because it is a big thing to tackle, but well worth it. If it was, if it was my personal business to be an inventor, that was going to be my thing. Um, I would become a master of Triz. But an abbreviated version of that's called SCAMPER, uh, S-C-A-M-P-E-R. And just real quickly, that's an anagram for, uh, you know, you want to think about it a little differently. If you look at a problem and you look at your solution, you go, how can I make this better? And you, you look at that and you go, well, S, what can I substitute? C, what could I combine? A, what could I adapt? M, what could I modify or magnify? T, what can I put to some other use? E, what can I eliminate? And R, what can I reverse or rearrange? So that's what SCAMPER stands for. Wow. And that's a real shortcut version before you explode into TRIZ. But I have to tell you, for anybody that's trying to do this for a living um, and really wants to make this their thing, become a master of TRIZ and, uh, and SCAMPER. And SCAMPER. Nice start, but become a master of it. Good stuff. Really study it. Okay. You, Thank you, Bill. One last final words of uh, word of wisdom to the inventors listening. We have about 20 seconds or so. What do you think, Bill? I think you have to also master your entrepreneurial skills. And I would recommend a great book uh, by Dave Pollard. It's called um, Finding the Sweet Spot. 
um, and it really it'll it'll guide you through like the twelve principles of entrepreneurship because I think a lot of people just like with the definition of innovation don't really understand what entrepreneurship really means mm -hmm. and I think if you you know you've got to be able to sell your idea it's not enough just to come up with a new idea so I think you need to be an entrepreneur as well so you need to be a problem solver you need to be an innovator you need to be an entrepreneur and you really need to understand what all three of those things are so if you become a master of trids or and or scamper you become a great problem solver if you learn how to innovate take those things and make them you know, valuable and profitable, right. and then you become an entrepreneur and you understand the entrepreneurial principles, you become a very, very effective person, you become Brian Freed, who can then <laughs> do all that on his own, uh, and don't a company like Lifetime. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you can also do both, this is something that you've done. Thank you, Bill. That was Bill Lazaroth, the Senior Vice President of Industrial Design and Product Development for Lifetime Brands. That was an unbelievable wealth of information thank you so much for joining us bill i know the inventors appreciate it people will appreciate it being as uh, an archived on our on our website for forever so thank you again for being uh, being on our show and helping the inventors out thanks again bill my pleasure brian i'm sure i'll see you around thanks and we'd like to thank the sponsor for, uh, sponsors of Got Invention Radio, Inventors Digest Magazine. If you're not a subscriber already, please go to any of the pages of Got Invention, click on the banner for Inventors Digest, sign up, and get your magazine. And, of course, go to InventorsDigest.com. There's always great information and resources on there. I'd like to thank our, one of our big sponsors, uh, Mojo 3D Printers. Thank you so much for being a sponsor. Inventors, now's your opportunity to be able to make prototypes at your desktop uh, by your computer just like a regular printer but it's making uh, rapid prototypes mojo uh, also has a banner on our page you can click on and find out more about mojo carter deluca farrell and schmidt patent attorneys thank you for your support and uh, quickpatents.com thank you everybody for your support united inventors association have a great night from got invention radio till next time good night